serve a good God, don't we? Amen. His grace is amazing, right? Praise the Lord. Amen. Well, you can be seated, and we're going to dismiss our children if you want. Um, for parents, this is for parents. Um, if you want your children to be in to hear the testimony today, that's, that's fine. Um, if not, our children's ministry is open, and so you can let your children go to Kids Dome. And so today, um, first and foremost, I just thank God for his presence in this place. I thank him for being here in our midst. Um, and we are, we are blessed. We are continuing in our No Apologies series. And so we started this series a few weeks ago. Um, with Adams Road ministry that came. Those were former Mormons who came to the, to the church and ministered to us. Um, and then we had our brother Elijah Abraham who came and he shared with us of his story and a whole lot more on the weekend as he was a former Muslim who got saved. And then when, I, when I was praying about this series and I was um, seeking the Lord and asking him for his direction as far as what we were going to do, originally I was just going to preach through some stuff and, you know, just explain some things. But my daughter, she came home, and I, and I have the privilege of sending our daughter to a, a private Christian school. And um, just want to throw a plug in there. It's an amazing school. We have amazing teachers that love Jesus um, and do a great job. They don't just love Jesus, but they are very tough. Amen. And teach our children the right way. Um, and so my daughter comes home, and she always tells me about this class. It's her science class. And Mr. Schwartz, who's going to share with us, he always has like a, a thought of the day or something like that. I don't remember exactly what she called it, but it's to try to help them to like look at things through a biblical worldview, which I appreciate as a parent. You know, you don't get that, you know, all the time. And so just like looking at things that are going on and then like try to talk about them. And one day she comes home and she's like, yeah, and so today, um, you know, Mr. Schwartz, he shared his thought of the day and then he, he started to share his testimony with us. And I was like, Really? And as she's sharing the story, I'm crying as my daughter is telling me this testimony, right? And she's like, and he's crying while he's telling the story. And I'm like, glory to God, this is so awesome. And so, you know, because you, know, you all know I don't cry. Like, I'm, I'm not, I just don't. I cry, but it's not very often, right? So it takes a lot. Um, yes. <laughs> I'm, not say, I'm not saying men don't cry. I'm just saying, right? It's just, it, anyway, y'all know what I'm saying. So the point is. As I'm hearing this and I'm feeling like, man, that's what I want to do. I want to bring people that have been saved out of different things. And so as uh, Mr. Schwartz was sharing, he was sharing his testimony and his story. And so this morning, I want you to put your hands together for Mr. Randy Schwartz as he comes to share with us. Thank you. Well, uh, I kind of hit a wall trying to figure out what I was going to say, which is funny because it's my own story. But uh, so yesterday I was sitting there and I just wrote the question down because questions help me. And I just wrote, why am I sharing this? Like, what am I doing? And so I came up with three reasons and I kind of tried to write based on that. So I want to give you the three reasons at the very beginning to get you seeing where my heart is on sharing this with my students originally and with anybody, but right now today. Uh, number one, to glorify God's power and personal love by testifying to his works in my life. Number two, to encourage God's people as they pray for loved ones without Christ, who may be like me in my past. And number three, to spur on the church for contending for the faith and to equip them to share. So where I'm going to start, I'm going to start kind of how I grew up uh, and, and basically the, the context of all this thing, where this happens. Uh, I'll get into really uh, an incredible night 
and then, uh, and then from there on. So let me start with where uh, my family was. I, I grew up in a, I was born into a non-believing family. Uh, my grandmother was recently converted the year before I was born, actually. I'm the first grandson and first grandchild, and she was converted the year before I was born. So my grandmother's been that light of my life continually, but my family personally, my father, my mother, my sister, uh, we just didn't, God wasn't a part of our life, and we didn't even think about it. You know, like, like God would show up at Christmas, and he was like this grandfather with a white beard who just kind of like nice, right? He wasn't like this all-powerful, awe-inspiring, sovereign over the universe who like sent his son because I'm a rebel. Like that wasn't even ever addressed. You know, it was this like Hallmark card God version. Nothing against Hallmark specifically, but. Um, and Christians to us really were like kind of dorky. Right? Like they were like these dorky, weak people who, like, after some crisis that they probably got themselves into, sought out and thought they were helped by God, but really it was probably something else. And, like, like that's kind of how we saw them. And I think I get that from my dad, because my dad shares that with me, or used to share that with me pretty often, because his brothers, after my grandmother was saved, he's got two brothers, and they both came to Christ too. But they were always like the weird family, right? Like, we would go to Christmas, and we would always get in the car ride back. We'd just, like, talk about how weird they were the whole way back. <laughs> Okay. Probably they're doing the same thing to us when we leave. But anyway, but my grandmother was just different. You know, uh, being the oldest grandchild, I spent a lot more time with her, and we have a really special bond to this day. And, uh, and there was just this unshakable feeling like she was authentic. You know, there's just some people you're, you're around, and, and you can be around authentic people all you want, but if you don't actually spend time with them, then you don't know what daily life looks like. You don't see the grind. And when you see the grind, you can't really argue with that. And so the only way to really miss it is to kind of ignore it as much as possible and don't ask questions. You know, my uncles and aunts and my cousins, we, I just didn't see them enough to really wonder about their life. But my grandmother, I mean, when I was in ninth grade, she lived down the street from my high school, and we lived like 30 minutes from my high school. So basketball practice in the morning, I would sleep at her house and then go to school that morning. I would stay with her like through the week sometimes. And so I just saw life, and, uh, and she's just different. Speaking of school, I was educated in a school system. I'm from Canada, uh, just outside Toronto, so this is really hot for me, even in here. And uh, <laughs> I was educated in a school system where the Bible was never mentioned. Uh, all, my, all, all views were basically viable, except any view that believes that they actually had any truth. There's this book um, that came out by a guy named Don Carson, and it's called The Intolerance of Tolerance. And basically his thesis in this story is the fact that, or this book, is the fact that the word tolerance used to mean that I tolerate that you and you and you and you can all believe something different than me and I will tolerate the fact that you're allowed to believe it, but that doesn't mean I'm saying you're right. It just means that you're allowed to think that and I'm allowed to argue against it and you're allowed to argue back. That's fine. You're allowed to have it. Where tolerance has moved now in our culture is to the point of tolerance means you have to also agree that it's right that this view is right, and this view is right, and this view is right. And if you've read your Bible at all, that doesn't make any sense because we have an exclusive truth. And truth by nature is exclusive. You can't have one thing be true for somebody and for somebody. It doesn't make any sense. But the cloud over our culture here and over that culture there was that, that that's the way it is. That as long as you kind of like in your own little house or whatever, you believe what you want to believe and you don't tell people that they're wrong, then you're, then you're good, right? Um, so we just kind of believe whatever our textbooks told us about the world, um, that the world was created a, a long time ago by natural processes, and life came that way too. And, and we didn't realize there was a choice in that. Like, honestly, like I, don't, I, I went to a school with 1,000 in my graduating class, and I don't remember one Christian 
in the whole class. Now, now, I wasn't a believer, so I'm not looking for them either. So they may have been there, but at least they weren't active. And they didn't mention anything. So when we're in science class learning about how life evolved from this soupy kind of thing in, in an atmosphere that really, when you look into it, doesn't even mi mimic what they thought the atmosphere was like. It's all not great science. I'm a science teacher, so I'm a little bit on that. But... Um, <laughs> But we didn't even realize there were smart people that had a choice. So like it's either you're smart and you believe in science, which isn't really science, you believe in the religion of science, or you're kind of like just backwoods, simple-minded, and you just don't get it. Like that was our choice. And so we realized like, well, I'm educated and smart, so I'm over here. And um, I remember that like there just wasn't, there was no presence of Christ in my school. And I'll, I could tell you all these stories, but I could try to figure out how to explain it. But the best way to explain it is this. Uh, my senior year, uh, two students, two girls on the way to school in the morning, a class that I had, a math class, first period, they got in a car accident on the way to school. Uh, both were ejected from the windshield. Both died. One died immediately. One died within hours. And uh, so we all went to this funeral. And, uh, and they were both uh, Chinese descent, so their, their family was Buddhist. And we went to this Buddhist funeral, and I, first, I'm not a Buddhist scholar now, but I had no idea what was going on. I mean, people were carrying, like, things with incense or whatever, and they were, and they were, like, I, I had no idea. And we all thought it was kind of strange, but at the same point, like, the thing that really sticks out to me, I look back at it, is I know a funeral's not the place to talk about it, probably. You don't talk about maybe heaven and hell when you think somebody's gone to hell at a funeral, maybe not that loving. But even after, like, this happened in, like, November, and through the whole year, nobody addressed it. Like, it wasn't even spoken of. Nobody said, hey, what happens after you die? Like, like, like what, do you think, what do you think Christine and Patricia are going through right now? Where are they? We just kind of, like, it was uncomfortable because we didn't have an answer. And, and the thing about questions is you don't ask them unless you think you have the answer, right? Or you don't want to. So that's kind of where my school was. That's kind of where our classmates were. That's where my family was. And so my resulting belief, basically, I have a hard time pinning myself and labeling myself. I think, I don't know if I would say I was atheistic per se, but I was at least on that borderline between agnosticism, which is I don't know what I believe and, and, and who knows, and atheism, which is like God doesn't exist. I was kind of on the fence of like, God probably doesn't exist. And if he does, it probably doesn't matter. And if he doesn't, it probably doesn't matter because we can explain anything anyway. Like that's kind of where I was. So from there, I played baseball my whole life, and I got a baseball scholarship to play at High Point University in North Carolina. It's a small Division I school. And um, from there, uh, I was looking to register for classes, and I'm a very typical procrastinator, so I didn't register, like, the first day, like my wife would have. And uh, I waited and waited and waited. And uh, so I went to a Methodist-affiliated school, which I didn't realize. I just had a baseball scholarship. I just figured that out. And there was a class you had to take, you had to take a religion course, right? So everybody who was not a believer would take world religions because that's the, that's the safe route. So I go to sign in for world religions. I'm like, I'm not taking no Christian class. So I go to world religions, and it's all booked up. You can't take it. I'm like, oh, man. So I look at what's next. I'm like, there's got to be something, like some weird kind of whatever. Here, it's human image in the biblical perspective. So I look at that, and I'm like, it's the only thing open. So I take it. I only tell the story because I don't think I would have brought my Bible had I not taken that class because it was part of what I had to bring. I had to bring, so, I, so it's funny because I don't remember looking around. I didn't know these things, but there was probably 20 people in the class. I'm sure they all had like study Bibles and concordances and their own personal notes. I had an adventure Bible. <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure I was the one they talked about when I left, but I don't know. But anyway... So I ended up getting a D minus in the class 
Because all I really knew was Moses did some stuff with water, and Noah did some stuff with water, and Jesus did some stuff with water, and Jesus loves us, and that's it. Like, that's all I really knew. And, um, and so really, that class was tough, and I don't remember anything from it. But um, I, when I played baseball, I had this teammate. His name was John Pavlak. And John Pavlik was the first person, my grandmother was always that influence, but John Pavlik was the first person who was a peer of mine that was a solid believer. And he was the first person who stood out and had this life that was just different. And, it, and, it, and I don't know how much you know about it, but a college, like 18 to 22-year-old guys away from home, like they're not all like, let's go to church together. Like it's not, <laughs> hopefully they are, but right, but like in the world they're not. And this guy was just like so radically different in that atmosphere. Like he just stood out so much. But, it, but at first it was kind of like, hey, there's the weird dorky kid that I was talking about before. But then I started to get to know him because he played the same position I did. So we'd take ground balls together all the time. We'd hit in the same group. We'd always spend time together. And, and then when the season started, he would invite me to this thing called chapel, which I had no idea what it was. And so in, in college baseball, you play usually Saturdays and Sundays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And so you, Sundays are usually a getaway day, so you want to play an early game so you can get back in time to do your homework or whatever. So we couldn't go to church if you wanted to. And so what he would do is he would preach a mini-sermon and have a little chapel service in the dugout prior to batting practice every Sunday. And he'd always invite me, right? And so I always just kind of brush him off and be like, oh, yeah, no thanks. And, uh, and then he would, he would always do this, like, all call, like, anybody want to come to chapel? More than welcome. But he would always come to me specifically and be like, hey, Randy, you coming to chapel? Like, no, man, uh, uh, maybe, I don't know. If I wake up, like, I just give him that answer that really means no. Kind of like when we tell people we'll pray for him. Like, oh, I will pray about that. We, right? So, so he, he asked me all the time. So then finally, like, like two years into it, right, this guy's a really nice guy. So I go up to him one time. He asked me, I said, John, can you do me a favor? He said, what's that? I said, can you stop asking me to go to chapel? He goes, why? I said, well, you're a really nice guy, and I hate hurting your feelings when I tell you no. So can you please just not tell me? Just don't ask me. He goes, well, thank you, but I'm going to ask you at least twice every time now. He just redoubled his efforts, right? And I look back at that, and I'm like, man, that guy just would not take no, and I'm thankful he didn't. We need more people like that, right? Um, so after a four-year career of baseball, I went undrafted, and, uh, which was a surprise to me. I was pretty good. I set some records at my school and whatever else. And when I returned my last fall to student teach, uh, I, for the first time in 17 years, I wasn't a baseball player which was really weird for me. And, it, and, and honestly, it's pathetic to say now, but I grieved that loss probably more than anything else in my life to that point. Because I didn't have anything like, like that was all I was. Like I went to school to teach physical education. I went to get my degree and I was a semester away from finishing it, but that was just like, I was hoping to be in the major leagues. I thought it was probably gonna eventually be like towards there. And then maybe after I make a couple million dollars and I retire, I'll go teach for free as a service. Like that's kind of where my mind was. It's stupid now to think about, but, but that's where it was, right? And so I just like, I remember I, I moved in with a, with a couple, uh, the guy I played baseball with, uh, she was a teacher, he was still in school and I was student teaching. And uh, so we were running this house. And, uh, and while we were there, I was student teaching, I got this call for an invitational tryout. Now baseball teams have two kinds of tryouts. They have Open tryouts where like 500 people show up and you get seen for three minutes and then basically nobody ever gets signed from the thing like that. And then they have invitational tryouts where somebody's seen you play somewhere and would like to sign you, but they're not sure if they have spots and they don't know what the season's gonna look like. So they bring like 25 guys 
and they work 25 guys out and get a really good look at them. So I got invited to this, and this is like finally, like, my call, like I thought it was over, and this is my callback. So uh, I get this call to come down to Dunedin, Florida, uh, which is near Clearwater, and, uh, and so I work out, I get ready for it. I get to the airport, and I forgot uh, if anybody remembers these things, but I had this little MP3 player that held like 20 songs. It wasn't an iPod. I couldn't afford I anything. So it was like, it was Sansa MP3. It held 18 to 20 songs, depending on how long they were. And you plugged it into your computer, and you had to download it off of like iTunes or My Kazaa or something, and you added all these songs in, right? And so I forgot that, and I didn't read, so I didn't have anything to do on the flight. So I went into, you know, the, when you go into an airport, you know how they have the like magazine bookstore place, you can buy water and books or whatever. So I'm looking at the rack, and I'm looking for a book that's interesting. I'm like, yeah, I'll get a book. So I see this book, and there's this white cover, and this guy's standing there holding two massive stone tablets. He's got a, a shepherd's hook, you know, like from the little plays that kids do, and, and a sheep. And he's in the middle of Times Square with this massive beard, and it's called The Year of Living Biblically. I'm like, this guy is weird, right? So I look at the book. I'm like, this might be interesting. I turn to the back because the first thing I'm saying, if, if this is a Christian author, I'm not reading the book because I don't want to get converted and like be saved. Like I don't need to be saved. I don't need to see this. I don't want to read it. So I flip to the back of the book. The guy's a self-proclaimed agnostic. I read the last chapter while I'm standing there to make sure he doesn't get converted in the book, and he doesn't. Okay. <laughs> so he doesn't. So, I, so I'm like, all right, well, I'll buy the book. So I buy the book. i got to wait an hour or two for the flight to leave. And so I start reading this book, and I really get into it, right? And this is what he basically did. I still have the book. Um, I don't know if I would recommend it because I haven't read it in, I don't know, 10 years or whatever. But um, he wanted to live the entire Bible out for an entire year. And so what he did, he, was a Jew, he had Jewish background, like his family, parents or something were Jewish. So he decided for eight months of the year, I'm going to try to live Old Testament straight up. Like every single rule I can possibly follow, let's do it. And then for four months, I'll try the Christian experience too. And that was his mindset. And he wrote another book called like The Know-It-All where he writes about reading the encyclopedia all the way through. Like he's just that kind of like immersive writer. So I'm reading this book, right? And there's all this stuff in there that I didn't think was in the Bible. And I'm like, this guy's making it up. I'm on the flight. It's like, thou shalt not wear clothes of mixed fibers. If you guys are Leviticus, Deuteronomy kind of people, you know that verse. But I didn't know that verse, right? And I'm like, that's not in the Bible. And, and, and he had like a rabbi come to his house with a magnifying glass and inspect his clothes that said 100% cotton because it would not be kosher or whatever if it was any mixed. Like if there was a thread of polyester, can't wear that shirt, right? And I'm, I'm like amazed by this. I'm like, nobody lives like this, first of all. And secondly, that's not in the Bible. So I get to the hotel. And the first place I go is on the nightstand. I pull the drawer out. What's there? Bible. Gideon's Bible. Right. Thank God for the Gideons. So I pull the Gideon's Bible out. I look in the Gideon's Bible. He has it all referenced, right? So I go back to the chapter, and I look at the reference. I'm like, I can't even remember the verse. Leviticus something probably or whatever. I look it up, right? And it's there. And I'm like, hmm, maybe I don't know this whole Christian thing as much as I thought I knew. Now, a better person would have gone, maybe I should look into it to see if it's right. I went, maybe I'll start reading the Bible to get ammunition to tell Christians they're wrong. <laughs> right? So, so at the tryout, we have the tryout. It's, uh, to, be, to be honest, it's like the dream of my life to play Major League Baseball. And I have this tryout. All I can think about is this book. And, and we get back. At the end of the tryout, they're like, hey, thank you. You know, if we like you, we'll call you. If not, you know, like, we'll call you. Don't call us. That's kind of how it went. And, and so I go home. I get in the cab, like I'm reading the book in the cab. I don't even care about the tryout. I get on the plane, I'm reading the book. I finish the book within like a day of getting back, okay? And so then I come to this decision where, you know what? I'm going to read the Bible. Why not? I'm going to read the Bible. So 
I didn't really realize that the, I didn't realize who I was moving in with at the time, but the people I moved in with, they went to church every Sunday. They'd always invite me, right? And so I, they'd be like, hey, if you want to go to church with us tomorrow morning, you're more than welcome. Now, we had a hallway where our bedrooms were on the opposite sides, and there was a bathroom in the middle. And so what I would do is when they would wake up Sunday morning, maybe you, this might be somebody's childhood, but wake up Sunday morning, I would hear them getting ready for church, and I would lay absolutely still <laughs> until they left. And not only did they leave, but like you got to make sure they don't come back because they forgot their Bible, right? So you just wait a little longer, <laughs> and then you get up right? So they would always invite me. So then I was sitting there and I'm holding this book and they're asking me about the book. They think I'm becoming religious all of a sudden. So they start asking questions, right? I'm like, yeah, I think I'm going to read the Bible. Well, they had this friend over. His name was Matt Gantner. And, uh, and he was a Christian. I found this out later. He was a Christian. And so he's like, you're going to read the Bible, huh? I said, yeah. He said, uh, well, what do you, how are you going to read it? I said, well, like a book, you just open it and left to right. I mean, that's how it works. He said, I don't think you should read it that way. I said, what do you mean? You have, to, you have to read left to right. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, you're going to get confused. Listen, the point of the Bible is Jesus. And so if you read in Genesis and you get into like Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, they're all worthwhile and they're there, but you're going to be really confused. Because if you don't know Jesus, you won't get that part. So you should read Genesis and Matthew at the same time. So I'm like, all right, sounds good. So I start doing it. Well, I get to about uh, Genesis 37, which is where Joseph has all his dreams. And, uh, and I have this dream one night that radically changed my life. So I'll tell you what the dream is. Um, so I have this dream where, and again, this is a weird kind of like situation for an atheist to be in, but I have this dream where, uh, I, I have this dream where it's real more so than real life. Okay, so like, like everything, every sound, every color, every whatever was all way more real than life. I walk out from the house that I was living in currently in the dream, and I walk out to the living room, and on the couch is this giant snake. Now, again, if I knew my Bible, I'd probably know better, but I don't know. So there's this giant snake, right? And it looks up at me, and it does. You ever seen, like, the way a dog, like, turns its head, kind of like it's going to, like, it's like, right? So the snake goes, and I look at the snake, and then it starts talking to me. Now, it's not just talking like, hey, how are you? It's telling me to do things, right? And all the things are just desperately wicked things. Okay, just terrible things. So it's telling me to do all these things that I don't want to do, and I'm telling it no. Like, I'm talking back. To, I'm like, no. And it's like, tell me. I don't remember what they all were, honestly. I don't even remember one of them. I just know they were awful. And so I'm yelling back. I mean, I'm just in a screaming match with the snake on my couch. Finally, it just lashes out at me and bites me on the arm. And I remember, like, I have no other way to describe this, and this is going to sound really stupid, but the blood from its fangs, like the blood that was leaking out of my arm, was like the reddest red of all red kind. Like it's, it's the most vibrant, deepest red that you could possibly imagine, just running. And, I, and that, I don't know why, but that color just sticks in my mind. And I'm looking at this snake's eyes, looking at me, and it's, look, and it's biting down, and I'm like, I'm going to have to fight this snake, right? So I start fighting this snake, and, and it's a long fight. It's like 10 or 15 minutes. It's just this epic battle, right? I end up stupidly tying it in a big bow tie, And I walk to the door, and I open the door, and I fire it out of the door. And I turn back around, and I look at the couch, and there's another snake. But this one's bigger. Right? So the same thing happens again. Telling me to do things. I'm telling it no. Back and forth. Tie it in a big bow tie. Out the door. Third snake. Same thing. Fourth snake. 
same thing. Now, if I knew my Bible, I'd know what number we're going to, but I didn't know my Bible. So I turn around after the sixth snake, and I'm like, okay, this has got to be the last one, right? I'm exhausted. Every fight's taking longer. I throw it out the door. I'm like, there cannot be another snake, right? And, and I don't know how to describe it besides, if you, if you know Isaiah's vision of the temple, and it says that the robe of the Lord filled the entire temple, the fact that the Lord could be in a room and fill it, but he's, kinda, he's somehow still in it, but he's way bigger than the room, you know, that's kind of the way the snake was. It was way bigger than the room, but somehow it fit on the couch. And I don't, to fast forward to when I woke up real quick, the things that it said literally made me cry in real life. Like I woke up and my pillow was soaked with tears because I cried just hearing what the snake was saying. And so I fight the snake and it's taking, I don't know how long, hours. And I end up in this point where I'm exhausted and I'm totally coiled up the snake's coiled up around me. I'm within the snake, but I've got my hands on my forehead because I'm protecting my throat. And my eyes are closed, and I'm totally, and, and I just come to this point for the first time, I'm just like, I'm going to die. Like, that's it. Like, I'm not making it out of this. I, I'm not strong enough. And at that point, my eyes are still closed, but I start gaining ground, right? And I'm like, I don't know, like, somehow I'm getting out of this. And I'm getting out, but I don't know, I don't know why I don't open my eyes, but I don't open my eyes the whole way. I get totally uncoiled, to a point where my eyes are closed, my hands are on the snake, and my knee is on the snake like this. And then it finally hits me like, what happened? Like, why am I winning? So I open my eyes, and I look down the snake, and towards the head is Jesus Christ with his hands on the snake. Which is a weird dream for an atheist to have. <laughs> right? So I look at him, he looks at me, and, and people are going to ask this question probably, and you're thinking it right now. I have no idea what he looked like. I knew who it was. I don't remember what he looked like at all. But he, we tie the snake up together. He probably does it, but I think I'm tying it with him, right? We, we, throw, we throw the snake out the door, and, we, and I close the door, and I turn around, looking for another snake, and there's no snake. It's done, right? And we have this moment at the door where we're kind of like, I'm dusting myself off, you know? And he looks at me, and again, I don't remember if he literally spoke it with his lips moving, if he spoke it into my head, if he spoke it into my heart, but he spoke it, he said, you've been so stupid your whole life. I've been here the entire time, but you just want to fight these snakes on your own. When are you going to wake up? And at that moment, I woke up. So I'm laying there in bed, right? It's 3 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. I've just student taught. Like, so I basically was teaching all week. I'm like, i got to get out of this room. I just felt claustrophobic. So I get out of the room. I, I open the door. At the same time, again, 3 a.m., Saturday morning, at the same time, the opposite door of the hallway opens. And out walks the girl of the couple that I was living with. And she comes out at the exact same time. And she's a teacher too, so she taught all week. It's 3 a.m. Saturday morning. Come out at the same time, and it's all she says. She doesn't say, why are you up? What are you doing? Is everything okay? She goes, if you want to go to church with us on Sunday, you're more than welcome. And then she heads. <laughs> right. And she heads into the bathroom and closes the door. And I'm standing there the whole way like, what just happened? <laughs> so I remember at that moment looking up, and I looked up at the ceiling, and I just went, you're actually there. Like, I can't deny, you're actually there. I don't, I don't care what people say, you're there, right? And so I decided at that moment, I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to go to church the next day, right? So I go to church the next day. Well, i got to give you a little bit of a background, um, which isn't very long, but my, um, my mom, her family, uh, we had a really, a family situation where, where, a family member 
I don't know how to say it best. I don't want to say too much about it, but basically betrayed. It was a big betrayal. And, uh, and so I was harboring this unforgiveness for this person, like really bad. And it didn't even happen to me. It really more happened to my mom, but, but I just could not let this go. So I go to church the next Sunday, and you can probably guess what the sermon's on. It's on forgiveness. <laughs> and so the pastor's talking about forgiveness and what forgiveness really means and how, how God could forgive us in Christ and still be just, that he could wash away our sins and continue to be just at the same time, and how incredible that that paradox that doesn't fit here for us is perfectly met in Christ at the cross, right, and his resurrection. And so the pastor says, listen, if God can forgive you in Christ, if everything you've ever done or doing or will do, how can you hold anything against anybody else? I'm like weeping right in the corner. I'm like, yeah, right? So, so they're like, uh, they had crosses at the front in both corners with a basket. And they said, listen, if, if you're holding unforgiveness against somebody, write the name of that person on a piece of paper and drop it in the box. Leave it at the cross. Just let Jesus take this over. Right, so I write her name, on, I go to the cross, I put it in, and it literally like a piano lifts off my back, right? And this, so they give a gospel presentation at the end. I walk up, I'm bald, I'm six foot four, 230 pounds of just wet mess, right? I'm just bawling and weeping. First thing I do when I get out of church is I call my grandmother and let her know, I've been saved. God saved me. You'll never, you'll never guess what, she can't even talk, she's crying the whole time, right? Next person I call, John Pavlak. Thank you for inviting me to chapel. It never worked, but it did now, right? <laughs> and the big irony, really, is if you think about who I was before and how I thought, I mean, I would, I would have been so skeptical about anybody telling me that story. Like, right now, if I was you listening to a guy like me telling the story, I'd be like, well, A, you probably, like, there's this line in Christmas Carol, if you guys have ever read or watched the movie, The Christmas Carol, where Ebenezer Scrooge sees a ghost, and then, he, and then, he, and then the ghost says, don't you trust your senses? And he says, well, no, because they could be tipped off by anything. You could be a bit of undigested beef, right? And that's what I would have said before. There's some reason, you had some dream, it's just, you were reading about Joseph's dreams, and you just, you know, power suggestion, that's what really happened. But the irony is, is that, that, that how prideful and stupid I was is exactly where God attacked my pride and my guilt and my sin. He, he attacked me exactly where I wouldn't have believed anybody else. And it, it's like that, that he'll use the foolishness seemingly to the world, right, to knock down its apparent wisdom. And I didn't read it at the time. I read it a few years later. But in Job 33, I'm going to read this, and this is going to be kind of amazing for you to hear it. But if you... you I don't know if anybody would know Job 33, 15 to 18, but it says this. In a dream, in a vision on, of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, while they slumber on their beds, then he, God, opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Like, I have that underline my Bible. I just wrote, wow, that's me, right? Because, like, I wouldn't have believed it. And here it is in Scripture right here anyway, but I would never believe that God could really speak to somebody through a dream. I get, yeah, Joseph back then, maybe, whatever, but it doesn't happen now, and I'm telling you it does, right? And if, you, if, you've, if you're current on stuff, you know that there's stories. I don't know if this is part, I didn't hear the story from the guy who was in Islam or whatever, but, I mean, like, Muslims are being converted by meeting Jesus through dreams all the time over there right now, Right? And there's this, like, inherent pride in us that wants to say, if I can't understand it or I don't agree with it, it must not be true, 
right? And God just took that totally away from me. Um, before I move on, I want to talk about a temptation there. There's a temptation, and with students especially, there's a temptation to respond to my story and my dream in a way that kind of says, if God would show up in my life, then I would follow him too. So I'll wait for a dream. But please don't take that temptation and run with that. Please resist that temptation. Because when I look back at my past, I look at people like John Pavlik. I look at people like Matt Ganner. I look at people like my grandmother. And I see that his hand was throughout my life the entire time. And one thing I realized really clearly is it's not a mark of pride that I got that dream. It's really a mark of foolishness and stupidity. Because it's like God's telling you, hey, I'm here. Hey, I'm here. And the funny thing is like, I'm here, right? Like, duh, I'm here. And it's not because I'm so amazing that I saw it. It's because I'm so foolish. It took him to really, like, in the middle of the night when men sleep on their beds, he opens the ears of men. So I pray that God would open ears and that we would respond to him in a whisper. And it wouldn't take a dream. If he decides to use a dream, that's on him. But for us, we have to be willing to hear him now. So to kind of wrap some ends up here, so afterwards, right, it's about two months later, I move home. Uh, I, I don't have a, I, they never called me back for the Blue Jays, right? So I call them, which you're not really supposed to do. And I say, listen, I either got to apply for my education certificate stuff and pay a bunch of money to get this, or it's a yes, so can you tell me what's up? And they said, well, listen, we don't really know yet. Why don't you come down to the Rogers Center, which used to be called this, it's where the Blue Jays play in Toronto, and, and we'll get a couple guys to see you work out, and we'll decide. So, um, so I drive down, and for the first time in my life, it didn't really matter that much anymore. You know, like it was important. For sure it was important. But I remember I pulled up to the parking lot before I left to go take my batting practice in front of these guys. And I remember praying. I just said, Lord, if this is what you want for my life, and I, I don't want anything else. But if you don't want it for my life, then I really don't care. I'm going where you're going. I don't care. And, uh, and oh, it's so freeing. You know, you can, like, baseball is a game, and you can have fun playing it when that's your attitude. I lived with, breathed with, worked with, sweat with guys who, that's all they had, right? So when you have a day where you go 0 for 4, which means you get no hits, right? When you have that day three or four times in a row, it's devastating to a guy who's 18 years old, away from his family for six months, and, and doesn't have an education, doesn't know where he's going, doesn't, doesn't know Christ, doesn't have any perspective on life. It's devastating. But when you're like, you know what? Like, God, I will work as hard as possible while I'm here, and when I'm not here, when you take me, just take me. Right? That's freeing. So basically, I call it my three years of baseball theological seminary. They called me back and said yes. And for my first year, I tried so hard to prove myself as one of the guys that I ended up losing the distinction of a crucified life. And so my ministry and my witness was really not very strong because I just became one of them. So my second year, I went back, seeing that, my second year of theological baseball seminary, to do the opposite, right? I'm going to be as conservative as possible and not do anything wrong, and then therefore they will see how glorious God is, which really I'm trying to show them how glorious I am. And then... And then they'll all get saved, right? Well, nobody wanted to talk to me because I was just this jerk who was all holier than thou, right? I lost my relationship and I lost my voice. So the third year, my last year, I balanced holy living with loving sinners. And, and I, it's so funny because when you talk to people about Christ, right, and they're like, well, Jesus hung out with sinners. Jesus, it's like, yeah, but Jesus did it on his own terms. He didn't go where they're hanging out and do what they were doing. He called them to him or he came by them and they came to him. Right? And he met them in places that he decided to be. 
right? And that's the same thing for us. We can't say, I, oh, well, I'm going to go to this place because that's how I get to know a sinner. How would I know anybody if I don't go to blah, blah, blah? No, you invite them to where you're going, right? You call them to your life. It takes time. It's harder. But it led to such a fruitful ministry, incredible voice into these guys' lives. People would actually come to my Bible studies when I would invite them. <laughs> they would come to chapel services when I invited I became the John Pavlak of my own team. I started inviting everybody to baseball chapel. Now, one thing that's a huge blessing is in the minor leagues and major leagues, they have a thing called baseball chapel, and they have people literally hired to preach chapel messages to these guys because you play uh, in two months, you get one day off, and it's usually not a Sunday, right? You're traveling, you're playing every day, so these guys can't go to church, so they come to them, which, again, that's the whole point. Like, go invite them to where you're going. Um, so then my first year, broken foot, year one, 10 games in. Some guys, that's an absolutely devastating thing. For me, it was a chance to read and grow. Because it really, like, I realized in year one that when people ask me questions, I didn't really know the answers to the questions I wanted to have answers to. Because I didn't study, right? Like, I just became a Christian, like, four months previous, and all of a sudden, it's like, here, going to professional baseball. It's like, ah, right? Um, the next year, I get back early to, to kind of get back into the swing of things a month ahead of time, back surgery. Again, thing that could be really bad, but sitting right in front of you is, is what happened during back surgery. My wife went to this Bible study that I had been going to ever since I moved down to Florida for spring training, and I met her when I wasn't really supposed to be there. I was supposed to be in Lansing, Michigan, but because of my back surgery, I was there. And she came, and I happened to see her, right? But, like, just amazingly, when you look back, you realize that, but in the moment, it's so easy to get frustrated by the things that don't go right. So we ended up dating, we got engaged, and uh, we had, again, another thing that would be hard, I was in Vancouver while she was in Florida, uh, Vancouver just north of Seattle, so that's like a three-hour time difference, and I don't know how long it would be to fly or drive. She knows she flew, but I don't know. Um, but the blessing of a long-distance engagement, again, was that we built our relationship on Christ, because we, we made a commitment that, listen, we can't be in the same place. Our time schedules are all off, so thanks to technology and stuff, I would read we would read the New Testament. We read the New Testament together during our engagement and finished it before we got married. And that was our whole goal. And then we could do it because I could leave her a voicemail just reading out Mark 1 and 2. And then she could call me back and read Mark 3 and 4. And she would wake up three hours after I would wake up and, or earlier or whatever. And, and because our schedules were not the same, right? But again, God uses these situations, these transitions in our life. Uh, that next year after my third year, before we got married, I felt this Abrahamic call uh, out of the country of my father's to retire from baseball. And, uh, and I was just reading about Abraham and how he got called out to leave, and he was told where he was going to eventually get, but he wasn't told where he was supposed to go on the way. And I was like, that's me. I'm, I'm gone. Like, that's it. And so uh, I left. We got married. I moved to Florida. Got a job teaching PE. Um, and then an unforeseen circumstance again led to a new opportunity. Uh, my, in my second semester of uh, teaching physical education for the first year, uh, the science teacher in high school's son committed suicide uh, at a Christian school, and so they didn't know what they were going to do. And they're like, "Well, we—I don't—I have no idea how long she's going to be out. These students are supposed to learn. Science is kind of important for their future. Like, what are they, how are they going to learn, right?" So, principals scattering, trying to figure out what they're going to do. So they call me in. They say, "Listen, we've been looking at everybody's transcripts. You're really close to having a science degree. And like, could you cover?" her class for the next little while, and we could cover somebody in PE because all they have to do is teach with a female teacher. You, we, I just can't get a sub to actually teach something. 
They can watch the kids and they can do a lesson plan that's prepared, but I can't make them prepare lessons. Like, I don't know, I'll try, right? Like, I have no idea. So I ended up teaching it for nine weeks and loved every minute of it. It was so fun to teach science. Like, I just, I don't know why. I just, in that way, I guess, in my mind, I'm just kind of a nerd. But, um, <laughs> but what it turned into was this opportunity because then when we looked for, to move, we were looking to move to Orlando or somewhere, and, uh, and at the Master's Academy where me and my wife teach, there wasn't a PE position open, but there was a science position. Right Now, I would never have known, and I would never have asked for, and nobody would ask for the situation that happened. Right? But one thing I see in my life continually is that, that if you are faithful in the transitionary periods of your life, God will use those later. You think you're on your way to Major League Baseball. I look at this thing like from my life here to Major League Baseball here, and I think I'm going that way, and God is taking you totally somewhere different, and it looks like you're going that way, but he's using every single person, every single situation to guide you towards where he's going to use you, right? And how he's going to create his witness. So I have an opportunity now to teach uh, at the Master's Academy. I teach middle school science, and uh, one thing that I get to do is I get to use that balanced approach I learned through the three years of baseball, that I get to, I get to try to balance that, and I don't know if I do a great job of it, but the, the non-holier-than-thou, but also not, like, losing that distinction, right? Between, like, like, like especially in coaching is one big thing. I coach baseball as well. And, and there are so many guys that you run into in coaching. Now, thank the Lord that we have an amazing staff during the baseball. Coach Cleveland, who's the head coach, is just a tremendous guy. But you get a lot of guys that coach at Christian schools and stuff that aren't really all that Christian, right? And they don't really use that witnessing arm. They just want to coach baseball. But he used the three years that I had to teach me what it would be like to really witness in that environment, right? Um, another thing that I really, because I grew up not thinking about the, the differences between what the world really is like and how was it really created and whatever else, it's a huge part of my life that I want to teach students to be thinkers in all facets of life. So I ask the big questions. He alluded to it already, the thoughts of the day, which probably go a little too long, right? But um, my goal is in my classroom and what I actually teach is to teach students to see our physical world and the living world, and to see where God already is in it. You don't have to put him in there. He's already there. Just show, show where he is. And then in the other things, the thoughts of the day, I just use a little bit of time I have as a little devotional, but just to think well, right? Because really, we're Christians because we sought the truth and we found it there. We're not Christians because we wanted to be Christians, right? We sought the truth and we found it, and it wasn't a thing. It was a person, right? And so we see Christ as the truth, and when we think that way, when we can think well, right? There's an, an incredible story where Jesus comes up to these people, right? And, and they ask him this question, and he doesn't answer it because he knows what they, and they, and they he says, listen, let me ask you this. John the Baptist, from, from God or from men? Right? And they huddle off in the corner like, all right, listen, if we say he's from God, he's going to say, why didn't you listen to him? But if they say he's from man, then everyone's going to hate us. They were using their thinking to, to get out of the question somehow. And what Jesus does to somebody who thinks that way is he doesn't even answer the question, and he just basically says, I don't have time. Like, not that I don't have time for you, but I basically don't have time for you. Right? I'm not going to engage in you to not think. I gave you a brain. I gave you eyes to see. Right? You can see things truly. Maybe not perfectly, but truly, right? And so use it. So that's what I love teaching students in that way. Um, so I just have two things I want to share with you, threads that I see through my life kind of as 
conclusions. Um, number one, you may not move someone from Z to A when you witness to them. And what I mean by that, this is a picture I got from another author. But I'm not an author. So I'm an author. But if you think about the alphabet, and Z being the most ardent atheist who hates God, and A being you're saved and you love Jesus, we always think that we have to move somebody from whatever letter they're at all the way to A in every conversation we have. We have this fear of witnessing to them because... Like, I can't move this hateful person to love Christ in one conversation. And the point is you're not supposed to, right? Like my, I look back at my grandmother. She was authentic over time. I got to see that. John Pavlik, authentic, right? Persistent. Matt Gantner. All he did was just say, hey, you shouldn't read the Bible all the way left to right. Just read two books at the same time. That's not a Z to A move, right? But it is up the alphabet, okay? Um, the person who invited me to church, like, like, it's not a huge move to wake up in the middle of the morning and just go, want to go to church tomorrow? All right, see ya. Like, it's not a, but, it, but it's important, right? It's all used. The pastor at the church, I don't even know the guy's name. He has no idea who I, I never talked to the pastor at the church who gave that message. I have no idea who he is, right? I don't even know the name of the church now. Like, I look back on it, but all those things are used throughout your life, and you look back on it, you're like, wow, like every single person moved me in that alphabet up. And so you are those people, right? And for each person, you're a different I don't know, letter mover, right? <laughs> for, for your spouse, you may be S to B. And for somebody you meet at Publix, you might be S to N or O or P. Like, it, like it's all different, right? Um, the second thing is that the transitions, I've already said this, are not waiting periods for ministry. Jesus often ministered on his way to other places. My broken foot, my back surgery covering a high school science class for nine weeks. You can see those as transitions to get where you're going. You can see them as where God is really building you or using you in that thing. And who knows, like this is, you know, you, you ever get that moment? I get that moment when I'm driving on the highway, when I drive by a car, and I think about all the stuff that's happening in each of the person's lives in the car, and then I kind of zoom out for a second, think about the entire highway, and think every thought I have and every feeling I have, everybody has those. And there's way more people than I can even think of. And that's not only existed now, but for a long time, right? And it'll happen for a long time until the Lord comes back, right? Like, like there's so many stories that you're just, you've different parts of, right? And, and in the transition, who knows? So just a little encouragement from my story. Uh, Ephesians 2.10. One thing I see in my life so clearly is that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He shows his faithfulness to us in our lives as a way to create unique messengers. How many of you could look at your own life, at things which he orchestrated in just the right way that you never would have dreamed of or planned for, that seemed trivial, right? But looking back, they were perfectly used. He has prepared and is preparing you to contend for the faith. Jesus saves sinners through his word and usually through his church, right? That's why we're here. So I just want to, I want to thank you for your attention for it. I want to thank God for how incredible he's been in my life and continue to be. But I know, like, the, the humbling thing is, is that it sounds like an amazing story, but every one of you has a story like that, right? And if you think about what kind of a God could orchestrate all those things together, I mean, yeah, when I look at creation, I look at the science of creation, I look at, like, physics and how fine-tuned our universe is. When I look at biology and the fact that you can't get life from non-life, it doesn't make any sense, and you can't make these complex organisms out of, like, but the chemistry, right? When you look at these things, that's enough to just look at and go, there's a God. But even if, there's, if that's not it, an authentic life lived by you is. Amen. 
I just want to pray for Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this place. My family is so encouraged to be here right now. And I just thank you for this body of believers. I don't know who's all in the room. I don't know where you've got them, uh, what letter of the alphabet they're at. I pray that they all move towards A if they're not there yet. I pray for those in this room, Father, that need motivation, that need encouragement, that need comfort, that they don't have to have all the answers because answers shut off our brain. Questions drive us to think. Questions that I read in that book caused me to look for the answers. We can't give people answers. They're going to look for them if we ask the right questions. Father, you have been so faithful in our lives. I thank you for all that you've done through Christ. I thank you for how your Holy Spirit moves. And I thank you for this incredible creation that you've given us to enjoy, but also to cultivate. Lord, you've sent us out. Help us to be faithful to your call. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. It's good stuff.